and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, here with you every two weeks, every other Wednesday we are here with you. I am the Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Our program is rolling along, and speaking of which, I want to mention two important happenings that we have going on right now. So in June of this year, the new institutional home for the Agents of Change program will be the Environmental Health Sciences Department at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. That's right, ehn.org and Columbia will partner up to keep this awesome fellowship rolling. Speaking of which, we want you to be a part of the future of this program. We are now accepting applications for our next round of Agents of Change Fellows. If you are an early career scientist working on environmental justice issues and want to amplify your voice and spark some change, we want to hear from you. You can get all of the information about the fellowship and how to apply at agentsofchangeinej.org. All right, let's get to the show. Today's guest is Ani Huang, a medical student at the University of San Francisco and former Agents of Change fellow. Huang talks about how the U.S. fails workers when it comes to toxic exposures in the workplace. And she walks us through some of her powerful advocacy work on occupational health issues. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Annie Huang. Annie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And full disclosure, this is the second time I'm asking you this because we had some technical difficulties. But we are back, and I already know the answer to this, but where are you at today? I am currently in San Francisco, California. Yes, and we talked all about the cost of living a couple minutes ago, but we can brush right past that. It's a beautiful place and it's expensive and everybody knows that. And what I really <laughs> want to talk to you about is your work. And uh, Annie is a current fellow right now. And I want to start at the beginning before we get to some of the work you're doing. And that is your parents came about during the Vietnam War. I read this in your application. Were denied education and immigrated while pregnant with you to the U.S. in 1991. So I wanted to start there. That's a really uh, interesting immigration story. And tell me about your upbringing a bit and what ways your parents' immigration story and struggles kind of shaped you early on. Yeah, I, you know, my the the immigration story, quote unquote, for my parents and my upbringing is definitely a little bit complicated. So my parents, as you mentioned, were born and raised in Vietnam, but both of their fathers, um, so both of my grandfathers were American soldiers who presumably fought during the Vietnam War. And so both of my grandmothers um, are Vietnamese. Although there's a little bit of wrinkle there because technically my dad's mom is of ethnic Chinese ancestry. Anyways, but for all intents and purposes, both of my grandmothers are Vietnamese. And so both of my grandfathers were American soldiers of different races and ethnicities, which is relevant given the systemic racism we have in society. And so my dad's father... Um, so my paternal grandfather um, was black and my mom's dad. Um, so my maternal grandfather was white. And so we all know from the Vietnam War how that ended um, and that uh, I guess both of my grandfathers at some point during their stay in Vietnam um, essentially abandoned uh, my grandmothers and the children that they had together. And so both my parents were raised by single mothers in Vietnam which was and is 
I wouldn't say taboo, but in any, anywhere you are being a single parent is just very, very difficult. Um, especially a single parent or in this case, a single mom in a society that I will say that is not amenable or understanding of how you got there in the first place. And so not only did, you know, I came to reflect and really kind of understood the as I've gotten older, really understood the gravity of what they did, because not only did my grandmothers have to figure out how to raise their children alone with, with essentially very little help, um, because they were essentially pariahs of society at this point. And, um, the, both my sides of my family, uh, from my, my grandmother's side, they came from poor families. Like my, my mom's mom, for example, was a rice farmer, for example, and she had to work all sorts of odd jobs to kind of make a living. And so not only did they have to figure out how to raise their children in that type of socioeconomic situation, but they were raising mixed race children, which is an issue in a communist country. And so, and essentially probably one of the worst things that you can probably do to yourself at that time, um, because now you're seen as traitors, you know, taking care of spawns of the enemies. And as a result, um, they were, my grandmothers were essentially forced into hiding a little bit. They had to kind of go into the jungle in the woods just to kind of find a safe space to raise their children. And my parents were frankly denied the human, like essential human rights, like the human right to an education. They could, they were kept out of schools because of how they work, of, uh, I'm sorry, because of how they looked, of their physical features. And so the more mixed race you looked, the less opportunity you, opportunities you would get. And so my dad would tell me how, you know, he would start working at the age of six and seven years old to try to support his mom and his brother, how he would kind of sneak to peer from the windows inside the schoolhouse just to see what the teachers are like teaching the other kids on in his spare time because he wasn't allowed to be in there. Um, both my parents never got past the first grade and it was very arbitrary because my mom's sister, for example, my aunt, she was able to get to the eighth grade, but that's because she didn't look as mixed objectively. And so my, my grand, my grandmother for, for my mom and my aunt, for example, had to adapt. They had, they had to dye their hair to try to make them look less noticeable, um, wear, you know, loose clothing, just any, any way that you can be as low key, um, as you can, um, in society. So I'll stop there. Cause I think I kind of rambled a little bit, but that's a little bit of kind of, um, that particular of, of my parents upbringing. Yeah, no, you didn't ramble at all. And it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story, heartbreaking, but it's a fascinating story. And I've talked to a few fellows on here. I think we all kind of have an internal search for identity. I don't think that's something that stops at any point, at least not for most of us. And I'm wondering kind of how you disentangled a lot of this history and different aspects of who you are and where you came from in kind of finding your own identity, or maybe you're still doing that? I feel like it's always a lifelong process, but it's something that, um, uh, I guess let's put it this way. So as you, as you mentioned, my parents immigrated, I'm going to put that in air quotes, <laughs> to the United States in 1991 um, under what is called the Amerasian Homecoming Act. 
um, which was essentially an act from Congress where somebody had a conscience and said that and provided preferential immigration status to children in Vietnam who were born of U.S. servicemen. And the criteria was how mixed you looked. It was based on physical features alone, um, which is crazy if you think about it. And so there was so. You know, I mentioned that because the features that made my parents marginalize in, quote unquote, their motherland was kind of like an op- a, a, a key to a new beginning and opportunity in their fatherland. And <laughs> sorry, my voice is breaking up a little bit. But so my parents resettled to New Jersey and that's where I was born and raised. So I've always been a Jersey girl. So that's definitely one of my identities through and through. Um, and they came here with the legal status of being refugees. Um, and kind of what that entails. Um, to this day, my parents only have a green card. They're permanent residents of the United States. They're technically stateless. They don't have a passport to Vietnam. They don't have a passport to the United States. They don't, they don't have citizenship technically anywhere. Um, and I, since I was born in the United States, I'm technically an American citizen. Um, and I've always considered myself as a first generation American, but I've also always kind of questioned that identity a little bit, because it's a little bit weird to say you're a first generation, something that you should have been all along. And, and just seeing how arbitrary that is to be considered coming from an immigrant family when technically they were American all along. And so that that's just a a weird space to be in. And so you kind of straddle a little bit two worlds. Um, But yeah. And, you know, when, you know, my parents still live in New Jersey, they came, I grew up in urban poverty. I grew up in poverty. We lived in a poor household. Um, My parents to this day don't really speak English. Like they would be considered what you call limited English proficiency. And as a result, my first language wasn't even English. My first language was actually Vietnamese. And so I started school. Um, uh, when I started grammar school, I was in ESL classes for a few years because I didn't grow up speaking the language. I can hear the Jersey in you now a little bit. Now that you mention it, <laughs> there's a couple words. There's a there's just a couple words in there that I was, yeah, I, no, I get it. No, that's okay. I get I get the I, I get the Canadian accent, even though I'm not from Canada, but I live really? in Michigan's, huh. Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So I think I say take the dog out, uh, you know, stuff like that. So there's I, I I have I have been told that as well. So we all have our we all have our quirks, but I like it. I like that Jersey accent. Um, <laughs> so what was it? What was it in this upbringing in in Jersey that that got you interested in environmental health? Because that's where you're at now. So where did that where did that come into play? Yeah, so that is also a little bit convoluted, but although in my brain, it makes linear sense to me, I wouldn't change it any other way. So I, um, at first, in a previous life, was super interested in like global health and and reproductive justice. That was kind of my jam. Um, So I went to Yale for college and there I was a molecular biology major. So I always had that kind of basic science hat. And I did a lot of work on virology and immunology and the common cold virus, not the coronavirus, just the rhinovirus. <laughs> just give some perspective for current day events. Um, but when I was in college, I was uh, really into the idea of um, being gung ho for women's health and reproductive justice and really global health as a, as a whole and did a lot of work in that space. I also did like a fellowship in public policy and international affairs. And so I knew that interfacing with, po- with policy was going to be a thing for me somehow. 
And so kind of past fast forward, like four to six years, I, I took some time off between college and, and med school. So when I started med school, I still came in with that passion for wanting to do something in the global health sphere, wanted to do something in the reproductive justice sphere, um, mainly also because I had a clinical interest in becoming an OBGYN at the time. And so I took like a global health class in med school as well um, to kind of supplement my 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 other my my global health experiences and I my school um, is really big on research and inquiry and scholarly projects and so they created like a speed dating event to find research mentors and I kind of anchored on what the OBGYN department was presenting where whatever they were presenting I was there and what resonated with me the most was um, a presentation by you will um, come to appreciate the program on reproductive health and the environment or PRE, which I'm pretty sure is an institution that you're well aware, given the speakers you've had on the podcast. And I believe Dr. Ami Zoda has done some of her training there, but they did a presentation on methylene chloride and toxic chemical exposure and policy. And I listened to the presentation. I was like, that, yep, that one, that one. There was something about it that resonated with me so much um, about what they said um, and thinking about my values and why I came into medicine, I was like, yep, this is, this is, this is what I want to spend some time working on and learning more about. And I will have to say, I had a lot of, I don't want to call them misconceptions about environmental health, but I had some opinions because at first I thought the people who were in environmental health were white people who were tree huggers that were out of touch with with reality and the struggles of real working class people. So that was definitely my um, perception. Um, I obviously couldn't be more wrong. And through this particular experience, it was kind of a snowball effect. And all of a sudden I was meeting people in the environmental health world and just learning more about what it entailed, the language. I think a lot of it was learning language, to be honest, and the vocabulary of this field. Um, my school, again, heavy heavy emphasis on research made us take like a two week intensive course on whatever we wanted. And I took one on climate change and health and did a deep dive on that, for instance, and reflecting and introspecting kind of about my values and, you know, why I was interested in the global health in the first place, just kind of pulling it full circle, um, is that at the end of the day, you know, I came into medicine and public health because I, you know, based on my upbringing and my lived experience, I want to make the built environment healthier for everyone to live, work, age, play, and to raise our children in. And I felt that this particular field just really encompasses that um, so beautifully. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of that work, but there's been, uh, there's one question I've been asking everybody and I want to ask you before we move on. And that is, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? It's a big question. Yeah. Are you going to share yours? Like, <laughs> Oh boy. You know, no one's asked me that. That's what I want to know. I want to know what shaped your identity. You know, I'm woefully unprepared, but I can, you know, I can think quick. I can think real quickly. You're, you're the first one to turn it around. A defining moment that shaped my identity. You know, when I was in college, uh, just after college, I worked at a factory. So I was uh, cutting steel, purchasing steel for a factory, which is very different than what I do now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was kind of, um, I, I was lost to some extent because I went to a big public university, Michigan State University, and hung out with my friends and partied and did all that and got my degree. And then you went to work and I was lost. My friends were gone. And I would just, I got this book, The 50, 50 Hikes in Michigan. 
and every weekend I would just drive to a new place and hike alone. And I fell in love with kind of the natural world and biodiversity and and kind of what it made me feel like, which was a sense of peace, of calm, of mm-hmm. uh, interest in kind of the ecology I was surrounded in and realized I, I want to in some way work uh, in an environmental capacity because my undergraduate degree wasn't in that. So I don't think that's really a moment and it's probably not a great one, but this, it, it kind of made me fall in love with uh, the outdoors and how it made me feel. And years later, I realized there was an environmental journalism um, focus at Michigan State University, a master's degree. And then of course, once I started doing that, instead of being the white tree hugger <laughs> environmental type that you that you mentioned, I realized that so much of environmental reporting uh, deals with people and people's exposures and people's vulnerabilities to things like climate change and uh, water quality. So it really switched from, uh, you know, reporting about trees and water to about people and impacts. So, yeah. Well, thank you for asking me. That was, I guess that's a, a mine and I was not ready for that. So um, <laughs> how about you? Yeah, I, I will have to say, I, me and the natural world, we we don't, we are not <laughs> friends. Like I do, I I I never really hiked until I moved out here in the West Coast because apparently everyone hikes out here, and I like the idea that you have to drive for hours to walk on a hill for another <laughs> few more hours, dehydrating yourself. You can't go to the bathroom, and if you do, it's just not pleasant. Like this just makes no sense to me. <laughs> Or like camping or anything. I've never gone camping. It's never going to happen. My partner wants me to do it. Maybe some glamping. But (laughs) that's how I feel about the natural world. Anyways. So your moment, your event or moment is not not the same as mine. I will. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, But I guess, I don't know if it's the most defining moment, but it's probably one of the most resonating moments in my life was... I want to say I was maybe around 10-ish, plus minus, and um, I forgot what the conversation was about, but I was talking to my dad, and maybe it was about my grades or report cards or something like that, but he said something. My dad's a very straight shooter, by the way. Like, he's just, he just says how it is. He is not one of those, like, he's not one of those parents that are like, oh, you're so beautiful. You can do anything in the world. The world is your oyster. No, no, no. He's a bit of a realist. And he's like, the world is a hard place and you need to get your stuff together. Um, And so that's him as a primer. And so what he said to me, um, and I'll never forget this, he says, I'm obviously not translating from Vietnamese, but he says something along the lines of like, you need to invest in your brain. You need to invest in your mind and you need to invest in your education because that's how you're going to be able to survive in this world. That's how you're going to get through life. Because I have a younger brother named Johnny He's like, you cannot fall back on manual labor like me and Johnny. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we can carry boxes. We can work these jobs that no one wants to work. You can't do that. Um, And he's he you can't do that because he basically said because I was a woman. But the idea is like I'm a very small, petite woman. He was just thinking about the realities of the world. Um, And so. And so my dad has always kind of emphasized the importance of investing in myself, in my education. And so he's always instilled that in me through this lens of this kind of realistic lens of the world is a very hard place and you simply don't have as many opportunities that some of us have 
that we can fall back on. And so I thought that was a very resonating, it was kind of like a real talk from dad, essentially. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's stuck with me ever since. That reminds me, I was listening to a podcast the other day about cycling. I'm a cyclist and uh, there, a woman was asked, what was the biggest difference between the, a lot of racing is in Europe, or I think she was from Poland or a Slavic country and the U S and she said, well, the parents in the U S they all seem to say, you can do anything you want. You, you, you will be great at anything. And she said, when I was growing up, my parents said, you are not good at that. You need to yes. find something you're good at. <laughs> Or get better at that thing because you're not good right now. <laughs> I thought exactly. it was interesting given uh, given yeah how how we we tell people they can do everything, and I think there's probably benefits to both to both of those. Um, to some My extent. dad is that, that's definitely his parenting style. Yeah, in the latter camp. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> so you you in passing mentioned uh, methylene chloride when you were listening to the talk from. Um, uh, when you were at the speed dating event and you went on to study, so you study toxic, toxic exposures at the workplace and in homes. And I want to start with some of your work on methylene chloride. Tell us what this chemical is, why it's harmful and who is being exposed. Yeah. So uh, where, where, where do I start? Um, so uh, methylene chloride, or it's also called, um, dichloromethane. It's a toxic chemical. It's a halogenated solvent for any nerds out there. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's an odorless chem. It's not odorless. It's a, it has a sweet o- odor. It's vapors are heavier than air. And it's um, something that you find in a lot of uh, products that are sold, uh, that, that were sold on the shelves of hardware stores. So things like paint strippers or paint removers. So if you wanted to, um, refinish your bathtubs, for example, um, you would use, uh, methylene chloride as a prominent, um, ingredient in those products, adhesives, sealants, sprays. It used to be in pesticides, also kind of an, um, an inert ingredient. And what makes it significant is that, Methylene chloride essentially causes this endogenous source of carbon monoxide. So everyone knows carbon monoxide, right? It's bad. (laughs) It's a poisonous chemical asphyxiant. And methylene chloride is metabolized in the liver and broken down into carbon monoxide. And it does this for like hours, you know, for hours on end. Um, And so you're essentially depriving your body slowly of oxygen when you're introduced to methylene chloride. Now, it also causes early onset heart attacks and um, arrhythmias or abnormal heart rhythms in vulnerable um, individuals. And so it's not uncommon for people to come into the emergency department in full cardiac arrest because of their exposure to methylene chloride. And of course, in my work, we found that to be the case as well. And so that's kind of the acute effect. So not only are you, de- you know, depriving of your body of oxygen and causing, it also causes uh, respiratory depression and depression of your central nervous system in the same way that you can, you can probably, if you know how opioids uh, work and how they depress your d- drive to breathe, well, me- methylene chloride through its own mechanism kind of does the same thing. So not only does it do that, but the chronic exposure, if you have more low level exposures, it the the effects are also quite insidious. It's classified as a human carcinogen, as a probable human carcinogen. It's been associated with rare cancers like that of the liver and the gallbladder, lymphomas. And even the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has even acknowledged 
that says that, hey, methylene chloride is likely to be carcinogenic to humans by all routes of exposure, quote, um, quote unquote, for them. And um, they even said that methylene chloride in the majority of its conditions of use poses an unreasonable risk to human health. So that's a little bit on methylene chloride uh, there. And so my work involves kind of this I've been working on this, I guess, for four years. So when I went to that speed dating event, that was literally four years ago now. Um, And basically, I did an investigation of deaths, of fatalities due to this toxic chemical. So just looking at deaths, not not look, not. Um, thinking about too much about people just being exposed and sent to the hospital and lived to tell the day, but actually who died. And from that work, I discovered um, uh, and co- confirmed about 85 deaths so with very eerily similar narratives. Um, it was kind of, you know, tough to go through and, and, and read. And the majority of them, nine, 10 of those deaths were just workers trying to just do their job, you know, whether it's cleaning an industrial tank or um, uh, stripping a, a, a bathtub, um, they died on the job just just using this toxic chemical. And it's it's one of those chemicals that you can't just use very safely. Um, you need to use special gloves. Um, that's not just nitrile. You need, um, you know, OSHA, the um, Occupational Safety and Health Administration recommends using a fully supplied respirator, not just like an N95. You need something that actually gives you some oxygen. Its vapors are heavier than air. So you can't just open the window and call it a day. Um, and so this is just some nasty stuff that, pe- that people use on the job and people used to be able to get on the hardware store. And just buy off the shelves um, as well. So I'll just stop there and see what other questions you have. Sure, yeah. And you, so you've taken this work. I, I know you've done some research on it, but you are not just leaving it in papers and reports. You've used it to advocate for people who are being exposed. And I'm wondering if you could tell me about presenting these findings to the EPA and what you've learned in trying to turn health research into action and solutions for people that are exposed. Yeah, and so... Um, yeah, so I've had the opportunity to present this to the EPA. I had a brief call with them just giving, this was a, a couple of years ago now, where we were just getting our preliminary findings and letting them know that, and this is before the, um, you know, for listeners who don't know, uh, methylene chloride was recently banned for, uh, in paint strippers specifically from consumer use uh, by the end of 2019. So the EPA finally phased it out. So you no longer can you technically can no longer find it on um, those shelves of hardware stores like your Lowe's, your Home Depot, or Amazon if you buy paint strippers. But you can still find it in other consumer products. So, but during this time, before that rule was finalized, you know, we presented our findings and we said, "Hey, you know, um, it's cute and all that you're you're doing all this stuff for consumers, but hey, we're finding out that workers are dying, um, and that we need to do something to protect workers." Um, and so that was a conversation we had with them and they listened to us at that time. They were thinking about not banning the chemical at all in the workplace. They were thinking about, well, what about more training or something like that, or more, uh, more rules in the workplace, even though we've 
shown that there's been persistent workplace violations uh, despite uh, OSHA mandates. And OSHA doesn't reach everyone either. And so we were able to speak to them. We uh, gave public comments, like written public comments um, in their like in some of their rules, uh, in kind of the rulemaking process. I've given oral comments when they've asked for it to the Scientific Advisory Committee, um, also giving them an update. And so that's, and, and in terms of just trying to turn health research into action, I've learned that there's a lot of consistent engagement that needs to happen um, in showing them that, hey, this is important. Um, you know, advocacy is all about that consistent engagement. And also um, just thinking about, um, advocacy in general, like coalition building, like having multiple disciplines, like show, in this case, you have clinicians doing this work or doing this research, you know, we're showing that in the house of medicine, this is important, you know, in the environmental health world, this is important in a human rights, uh, world, this is important. Um, and I, and so I think, um, that type of coalition building is important. And then if you think about, you know, I mentioned that methylene chloride is now banned um, in paint strippers in the consumer setting. And that was due to grassroots organizing. That was due to families um, who actually my team got to know personally. Um, and um, and we've contributed to that effort by giving them our research, by uh, giving our preliminary results to um, uh, amicus briefs, for example. Um, so that that came from grassroots organizing of families and and people who uh, were uh, who were who have been exposed to this chemical, and along with the nonprofits, to really advocate for the banning of this chemical. So I think there there is a lesson to be learned about. Um, community organizing and coalition building and also being at the right place at the right time. Um, uh, and, and kind of the political landscape also affecting as well. So, you know, the rule to ban methylene chloride in all, virtually all settings, that rule was, was um, proposed on the last day of the Obama administration. And then when the next administration took over, it kind of just went back to the wayside and it's been an uphill battle ever since. So understanding also kind of just the political landscape is also important in terms of advocacy work. Yeah, I think the the notion of collaborations, I think you said coalitions, but you know, collaborating and consistent messaging is so important. I think about that in in journalism a lot. Well we we cover the the first thing that always comes to mind is North Carolina's hog farms, uh, mm. kind of as an environmental injustice story, because it's been a story for 25 years, 30 wow. years. And uh, it's still a story because it has been around for 25, 30 years. I mean, that's part of the story is why isn't anything happening? So it's worth that consistency to still cover that, to still cover the people that are dealing with that, because eventually the messaging will get through or, or other collaborators, other publications will pick up the story and run with it as well, which will get more attention on it. So I think those are two really important points that go beyond science. And this, so this chemical, specifically the chemical you're talking about, I think of workplace exposures. It's almost kind of a class issue too. I mean, a lot of people yeah. turn a blind eye to these toxic exposures in the US because if if you were working in an office and there was a slow leak of something that was linked to all of these health problems, I would imagine they would stop that immediately. They would They would take people out of that office and make sure they're okay. But these are 
you know, labor jobs. These are blue collar jobs often taken by low income people, immigrants, you know, people who don't have the opportunity to, to pursue higher education, so on and so forth. How would you like to see this this changed? Um, and how can we frame the conversation to bring people together fighting for economic equality, racial equality and workers rights as, as the causes that you mentioned, they have so much overlap. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really charged question. And I'd, um, I'd like to know who these people are who are turning a blind eye. I'd like to know who they are and, uh, you know, and kind of push them a little bit and ask them, what is it about the talk? Is it just certain, like, as you're alluding to, maybe is it just certain jobs that they care? Cause clearly in an office setting, maybe, you know, in some, unnamed tech company, you know, building or whatever, if there was a leak, maybe they'd get to it right away. Um, but, you know, so it, it, as your question alludes, it is all about framing. Um, and I, I do believe in the value of kind of appealing to people's kind of existing values, because no one really wants toxic chemicals in their home or their workplace, like no one, right? Regardless of whether or not you care about others, like no one really wants it, right? There's a reason why we have a multi-billion dollar industry in the clean beauty world. I think it was recently valued as like nearly $20 billion. You know, there's a reason why there's like this consumer demand for like environmentally friendly laundry and dishwashing and shower goods, right? So there's clearly a market market for this is a reason why people go to Whole Foods and buy $8 strawberries, organic strawberries, right? Why are they doing that? Um, So clearly people are speaking with their pocketbooks about what they want their built environment to look like. And what we're trying to say is, you know, for, as you said, these more um, labor jobs, you know, we want the same for them in their workplace. They have families that they go back to um, as well. They have children to raise. And and for me, this always takes a little bit of a personal, um, you know, thinking about my, you know, my interest in environmental justice. You know, my my personal stake in it is like my parents are working class parents, you know, my mother worked in a nail salon, my mother works in a nail salon and she's exposed to God knows what every single day for the past two decades. And you see it, you know, as a, as a budding clinician, you see it, you see the weathering on her body. Right. Um, and, uh, same thing with my dad, you know, my dad (laughs) with his quote about manual labor, you know, he works a manual labor job. He works in a warehouse, um, where there's, you know, it's like an old dusty warehouse and he has a pre-existing lung condition, you know, and you also see the weathering of that. And so it's about, you know, it's seeing the weathering of these cumulative effects on people. Um, and it seems like, you know, you can call, you can, you can classify them as whomever and whatever you want and put whatever label you want. But at the end of the day, you can put whatever label on them, but at the end of the day, these are all people, you know, these are your neighbors. These are the people who you, um, you meet in life. And so I think appealing to those values that clearly already exist because people are speaking with their pocketbooks about it, um, and framing it, um, in a way that maybe is not so charged or, you know, that closes the conversation. Um, I think that'll go a long way. And you've done, so you've done a lot of public facing science communication on this issue and, and others with communities themselves, with policymakers. And I'm wondering if you can talk about 
tips? You know, what have you learned? What mistakes have you made? What tips would you give for scientists who want to engage in more science communication and advocacy and not just publish in a journal and then leave it be, but, you know, use it for action? What are some tips? And more curiously for me, what are some mistakes maybe you've made <laughs> that you've learned from? You know, I'm, I'm always like, I, this is something that I'm still working on. So I would love some tips and some tricks as well. And something I'm looking forward to developing myself and the general advice of this area, but kind of, as I mentioned before, as far as wanting to engage in more science communication and advocacy, you know, we've already underscored it and we'll do it again. Like the idea of coalition building and community engagement, right? Um, it's about going, um, back to the community in which you're trying to serve or you're trying to uplift or you're trying to amplify. Um, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, um, environmental health and injustice, um, environmental health and justice, you know, it requires a multi-pronged solution. It's a multidisciplinary field and it really, um, uh, requires kind of a multi-pronged approach and kind of a crosstalk amongst disciplines. So I think that is going to be uh, key in terms of just amplifying your own advocacy and also just um, uh, kind of uh, expanding your own personal horizons if you're you have that thirst for knowledge. Um, you know, it's funny for the past year and a half, like during this pandemic, I guess going on two years now, when people talk about science and scientists and researchers, you think they're talking about like some monolithic thing, but it's not right. It's it's completely siloed and no one ever talks to each other. And so I think getting out of that more and more and more, especially in this field, is going to be super important. Um, I think as far as community engagement um, goes, you know, yeah, we, we publish in a journal. And hopefully, I mean, publishing is always the hardest part, to be honest. And it's, it's very hard to publish in a peer reviewed journal, um, especially one that you want that has a high impact. Um, and even before you go in the, oh, I need to write an op ed. Oh, I need to write a blog post. Oh, I need to interface with some media folks. All of those, by the way, are important. Or, you know, I need to be engaged in my Twitter account. But even before you do all that, how about closing the loop with the community that you had to tap into? Right. So the people who had research participants, the people who had to do focus groups and interviews with with these communities that they're trying to um, uplift and advocate for. How about closing the loop? And that's probably the simplest science communication that you can do. Right. Is letting those communities in. They want to see the fruits of your labor. They want to see how you know, you took on, you know, their, how their emotional labor, how their experience, how their perspectives are reflected in your work and how, what impact that it has. And so I don't see that a lot. I think in research, I think academics do a pretty poor, piss poor job in kind of closing the loop um, with the communities that they just tapped into. Um, and I think, I think, We've seen, I think, in the past two years, the little bit of mistrust and distrust of the scientific community. And I think you, I think that's a, such a simple way to um, kind of bridge that that trust and let them know what contribution that they have, because, you know, they'll, they'll have a better taste in their mouth 
um, they're going to, it's going to be a snowball effect, right? Those, the, the, those communities, they're going to tell their friends, they're going to tell their families, they're going to go on their social media, right? They're going to go on their Facebook and their Twitter. And so I think continuing to create a relationship with that base um, is going to be super important. Um, you know, I can give a, a little small, this is a very small example, but like for my methylene chloride work, for example, um, I alluded to the fact that we made, we developed a lot of relationships with the widows of the deceased that we investigated. And so, um, so when our paper was coming out this year, before anyone else, we, we went back to the families, we went back to those widows and we said, Hey, this is, this is what the finished product is looking like. This is what we are planning to do. Um, you know, and, and, and thanking them and, and having that communication back with those, uh, with the widows and the families and, and letting them know that they were so crucial and, and, and that, you know, the, the deaths of their loved ones will not be in vain. Um, and the response that we got from, from those families have been nothing but positive. They've been wishing us all the luck and wishing, you know, I, I definitely get a lot of wish for, you know, my, my, my career and, and everything. And so, um, just, just that alone, I feel that relationship building that in itself is, is super important. There's also a form of empowerment there. We, we did a study with, um, families in fracking country in Western Pennsylvania, uh, recently. And when we had our results published, all of a sudden, these people who have been saying, crying out for help from their policymakers, they had numbers that they could put, hey, look what's in my body, look what's in my child's body. So I also think on top of it, just being the right thing to do. Uh, right. I think there's there's real empowerment there, depending on the research, when you give it back to the community and let them own a part of it and use it to advocate for themselves and their communities. So it's a really good point. And Annie, yeah. I've spent so much time talking about methylene chloride. What else are you working on? Tell us a little ah. bit about what you what you have going on and, and what you plan to to do moving forward. Yeah, I mean, other than methylene chloride, I've dabbled a lot in like water equity access, the idea that, you know, everyone should have access to good tasting water in a, in a public setting in the public realm. So they have done a lot of work with communities here, um, especially in, in historically excluded neighborhoods on, on um, building water hydration stations in the city of San Francisco. Um, I've worked on thinking more about more on toxic chemicals, thinking about green chemistry. And, and uh, recently during the COVID-19 pa pandemic, I've done a lot of work on um, air quality in schools and thinking about how do we get our children back to school during the pandemic and, uh, and making sure that the air quality, given that we have an airborne virus, um, making sure that schools are a safe space. I've done a lot of work in that. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm also in med school and uh, training to be a clinician. So I'm hoping to go into emergency medicine. And so that's right now the field that I'm currently applying into and have been putting a lot of my energy in that for now um, as well. Um, and so as far as forward facing, that's what I'm looking, looking forward to. And I forgot to mention as far as your point on um, or your previous question on just uh, science communication and, and advocacy. Um, it kind of just came to me and, and, and engaging with policymakers. I remember kind of in my first year of med school, um, I, uh, I had to do like this tour of like city hall and we met with like the city officials and the policymakers. And one of the moments that really struck me was 
the conversation that we had with one of the legislative aides. And I remember she was just like, at that time, what she implored us to do was, I'm kind of paraphrasing and quoting her, is like for us to get out of the ivory tower, you know, like policymakers, you know, they want to hear from the experts. They want to hear what your science is telling them so that we can, that way they can translate it into something that actually will help people. Um, And they want to be able to lean on that expertise, but we got to be able to get out of the ivory tower and speak to them. Um, And so I thought I'd mention that because I, I thought that was, that was definitely one of the resonating moments to hear, just to hear that. I knew that, but then to hear that, you know, I think that just resonated with me and um, definitely was a huge impetus in me pursuing more like um, health policy work. Excellent. Well, I have two more questions. And this first one is more of a comment than a question, but your parents have to be so proud and yeah. such strong and such strong people to have endured what by all accounts sounds like an incredibly hard childhood and journey uh, to bring you here and look where you're at. You would think so, but my mom is like, how are you almost dirty and don't have a job? Like, how, how is this a thing? So you, you would think, but I don't know. Like my mom is just like, how do you not have a job right now? Like, I don't get it. You know? And then she'll start naming like, you know, this first cousin, this second cousin has a job and they're making more than you. So this is what I have to deal with in real life. I love that. That's a, that's the perfect answer. I tried to be, tried to tug at the heartstrings and no, uh, nothing from the parents. Nope. Just get, get your ass a job. Basically. I like that. Well, Annie, this has been a whole lot of fun. My last question is what is the last book you read for fun? I'm going to say that I'm so not a reader. You'd think I would be, but I'm not. This is just not the modality that I like to engage in. I'm like an audio visual person. I like listening to podcasts like this one, for example. I listen to every single episode. Um, but I will say that um, my partner recently bought me a book by one of my favorite comedians, Ali Wong. And she wrote a book called Dear Girls. So if you have if you ever seen her, like if you like her comedy, you will like this book, essentially. She basically puts her all her comedy, muju, jo, you know, voodoo into written form. And it's completely hilarious. It's completely a, a quick read, especially as someone who doesn't really like reading. And so that was the most recent book that I've read for fun. Excellent. Well, Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. Goodbye, everyone. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I would encourage you to check out Annie's essay that touched on many of the topics we discussed today. You can find that at ehn.org under our special projects tab, and it's titled, For Thousands of Americans, Unhealthy Chemical Exposures at Work Are a Needless Reality. While you're there, click the big orange donate button if you'd like to support us. You can find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Sio, and Aaron Gomez. And our intro and outro music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. And one last reminder that we are accepting applications for our next round of fellows. 
So if you or someone you know is interested in the program, please apply. You can do that and learn all about the fellowship at agentsofchangenej.org. All right, thanks so much for joining me this week. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when former fellows Asma Hassan and Cielo Sharkas take over the podcast in a two-part series where they speak to their mentors. In part one, Sharkas speaks with Joe Vanderspeck, a retired professor of BU Medical School and department head of the Worcester Public Schools Biotechnology Program. Have a great week, folks. 